This is our Simondon study group coming back to Simondon again after our little detour. We're picking up from chapter two of the complement uh, in volume two, um, the consequences of the notion of individuation. So last time we read chapter one uh, of this relatively short text. So we looked at the, the notion of uh, relative and absolute values. That's the first section of the text. And, and so values for Simondon here are what sort of governs the compatibility of different elements of, of action. And, and so he, he talks about the organic and technical um, conditions of action as, as being made compatible by values in, in various ways. And then he talks about culture as culture as, as playing the role of the absolute values. Um, so culture makes compatible the organic and technical necessities uh, or conditions of action. Um, so there are certain conditions that human beings are uh, subject to as living beings, and then there are conditions of technicity, uh, and then the uh, the values that make up culture are uh, what makes com- makes those two uh, sets of conditions compatible with each other. Uh, and then he talks about the relationship between the individual and the group. So he argues uh, again against what he calls substantialism. So this would be the idea that um, the individual is a, a sort of substance that is like self-contained, and and then in that conception it starts to become difficult to explain how the individual is integrated into the group uh, or the relationship between the group and the individual is one of uh, conflict or um, contestation of some kind where there's a you know interest of the individual and interest of the group and those two interests are incompatible with each other and so th- there has to be some sort of um, compromise on the part of the individual to integrate into the group and so um he wants to recenter the understanding of action and in a way that doesn't have this same uh, incompatibility between the individual and the group. And so he, he talks about in the, in the next section, um, this notion of the problematic um, or the problem. Uh, and, and so in, in moral uh, reasoning or, or moral thinking, you, you can have uh, a problem presented to the subject so there's a, a problem about what the right thing to do is or, or what uh, course of action to pursue. Uh, and then um, it's by working through this problem and um, selecting a course of action that the subject uh, makes makes different um, interests compatible with each other. Uh, and so it's, it's that process of working through the problem that we're interested in um, rather than the rather than. Uh, an understanding of uh, moral reasoning and moral thinking that is sort of oriented around the notion of choice. Because when you, when you talk about a choice, um, you're presenting uh, two options and then uh, the subject is supposed to select one of those options. Uh, but it, it's only ever um, a problem when there's no way of actually selecting one of those options. And, and so the subject has to sort of pick at random, uh, I don't know, flip a coin or whatever to to say, I'm, go- I'm going to do action one instead of action two. So this whole sort of 
framework for the problem. And you can think of like the trolley problem or, or these types of examples that are sort of well known in uh, moral philosophy. The, these these types of problems are sort of setting the 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 way the whole problem is set up is sort of insoluble. It, it's just um, a choice between two options that are set up to be um, undecidable or is set up in such a way that you can't make a decision between the two. And and so rather than centering our moral thinking around choice, Timo Don wants to center it around the notion of um, of resolving a problem or coming to solve a problem uh, and and uh, making compatible what was not compatible before. And, th- and then so he talks about... Um, moral consciousness or, or, or conscience. Uh, and this, this is uh, a sort of second order regulation of the living being. So the living being as such has a, um, a regulation as part of its um, functioning. It preserves certain states. Uh, it keeps its temperature at a certain level uh, or within a certain range. It keeps the the ratios of different substances in its blood at, at a certain level, um, and so on. It, it it preserves itself in in this uh, in this uh, state or a range of states, um, and so it's homeostatic in the the cybernetic terminology. Um, and uh, and so this is a sort of first order regulation um, of the living being, but the actual. St- states, the goal states that um, its regulation is oriented towards are, are sort of predetermined or are, are um, a sort of fixed set of states, um, whereas individuals or, or entities that have uh, a moral consciousness or, or a conscience um, are capable not only of this sort of regulation towards goal states, but also of electing goal states towards which to uh, to, it, it's going to be oriented. Um, so you can decide to structure your life around a certain goal state and um, preserve uh, uh, or, or orient your behavior around um, regulating uh, a certain goal state. Uh, and this is what Simone Don described as freedom here. So it, it's not, um, freedom doesn't have to do necessarily with uh, choice in the sort of classical sense, uh, freedom has to do with being able to select the the goal states of your behavior and your action. Um, and then he talks about how uh, there there can be sort of failures of conscience, or um, what happens when you uh, don't allow this conscience to act in the way that uh, he described in the previous section. And, and so he talks about um, the role of stereotypes. Um, and, and so here we have um, the group uh, um, sort of tendencies or, or um, he uses the term instincts as well. So you have these sort of uh, immediate reactions to other people that don't belong to your group in whatever way and from a different nation or class or whatever um, group you want to use. Uh, you have this immediate reaction that these people are are um, dirty or they're um, uh, immoral or or stupid or whatever. You you have this immediate negative reaction to people from a different group, uh, and um, and so he sees this as being a, a failure of um, conscience because 
you are not allowing your uh, immediate reactions to be sort of uh, reoriented or, or restructured by the action of conscience. Uh, and then so the last bit of the, the chapter, he talks about how um, he makes this distinction between societies and communities, uh, with community being a, a sort of biological concept uh, or organic concept, and then society being an ethical concept. Um, and he suggests that um, in uh, there's a difference between societies and communities in terms of their scale of values, so that um, a, a community has a, a set of values that has a, a positive and a negative whole. Um, so there's there's good and there's bad, or good and evil, or whatever uh, pair of, of positive and negative valorizations. Um, Whereas in a, a society, there's only degrees of positivity. Uh, so there's um, the good and the neutral, um, or the good and less good. Um, and, uh, and so there's this difference in, um, in the, the scale of, uh, of values is what characterizes the difference between societies, uh, which have this quality of openness and um, progressive development as opposed to communities which have a, a closed character and uh, are, are sort of um, just sort of maintain themselves in their uh, their current state. And, and of course, these are not um, communities and societies are not sort of two distinct sets of groups of people. It's uh, each group of people has um, some aspect of community and some aspect of society that interact in complicated ways. Um, and that's about where we ended up uh, last time. Um, so we can pick up uh, from page 410, the beginning of the second chapter. Um, I'll let someone else read since I just gave that long uh, introduction. So if someone else would like to read the first page or so. Sure, I can go. Sorry about that. Uh, chapter 2, Individuation and Invention. Uh, section 1, The Technician as Pure Individual. Technical activity consequently can be considered as an introductory element to veritable social reason and an initiatory element to the sense of the freedom of the individual. In fact, the community identifies the individual with his function, which is organic or technical. Yet, while it can totally identify the individual with his organic function and his organic state, the young, the old, the warrior, it cannot make him totally adhere to his technical function. For example, in the Homeric tales, the figure of the physician is depicted all by himself as equivalent to several warriors, Paulon and uh, Taxios Esti, and is therefore honored with this in mind. This is because the physician is the technician of healing. He has a magical power. His strength is not purely social, like that of the chief or the warrior. His social function is what results from his individual power and not the other way around. The physician is more than man defined by his integration into the group. He is all by himself. He has a gift that is given to him alone, that is not taken from society, and that defines the consistency of his directly grasped individuality. He isn't just a member of a society, but a pure individual. In a community, he is like other species. He is a singular point and is not submitted to the same obligations and the same prohibitions as other men. The sorcerer or the priest are also the bearers of a superior technics through which natural forces are captured or divine powers are rendered favorable, 
One man alone can stand up to the leader of the army. One alone can command his respect. The prophet Tiresias is more powerful than any other being defined by his function, since he is the technician of foreseeing the future. Even a king is bound to his function, despite the fact that he may be legibus solutus, above the law. In a community, the technician contributes a new and irreplaceable element, that of direct dialogue with the object insofar as it is in it is insofar as it is hidden from or accessible to the people of the community from outside the body the physician knows the mysterious functions that take place within the organs the prophet reads in the entrails of victims the hidden fate of the community the priest is in communication with the will of the gods and can modify their decisions or at the very least know their judgments and reveal them right um yeah so we can stop there um yeah, so here he's talking about um, this role of the technician, as, as he calls it. Um, but this is sort of any figure in a society that has this um, knowledge uh, or skill that is um, sort of out of the ordinary. Uh, and um, so he, he gives the example of the doctor in the Homeric um, era. Um, and there are other examples in other societies. Uh, I was just trying to find something quickly, but um, I didn't find a a good link. But um, in um, certain West African societies, um, blacksmiths had this sort of special social rule. They they formed a sort of caste. Um, they like lived outside of the the village with uh, where other people lived, and and they had like special um, religious rules and and so on. Um, um, so in many societies, you have this uh, figure, this social rule um, of a person who has this uh, um, this skill or knowledge that um, the rest of the society doesn't have. Um, and um, he he points out here that this, um, in the case of um, technicians, there's uh, the social role of the technician is not sort of self-contained in the way that the social role of like a king or uh, any other um, uh, social role is determined. Um, so the king is something like that is determined just by virtue of the set of social roles in a given society. Um, so a, a king is just someone who occupies this particular function and has these rights and these um, duties and so on. Um, whereas the technician is someone who has this uh, connection to something extra social. Um, right, yeah, thanks, Angus. Um, so there's a, a link here in the chat about um, the, the role of the blacksmith in West Africa. Um, um, but yeah, so the, the blacksmith or the physician or the um, technician in general is someone who has a link to something extra social. Um, so they have this connection to hidden capacities in nature. Um, they have the ability to understand and to use um, some aspects of the natural world that is hidden to the rest of, uh, of the society. Um, and so uh, this role of the technician, uh, as, we're, as we continue to read this uh, chapter, we'll see that it, um, it, it allows for some uh, individuation in a different way than in the other social roles. Uh, and, and so he calls this the pure individual. So 
it's an individual, um, uh, a technician is an individual um, because in, in a, a purer sense than anyone else in the society because they are not sort of integrated into society um, to the same extent as, uh, as other social roles. So even the king is sort of a, a singular figure, um, um, but uh, the king's role, um, the king's function within that society uh, sort of determines what uh, the king is allowed and allowed to do and uh, what interests the king has and so on. Um, um, whereas the technician has this extra social um, relationship that makes, makes, a, makes him uh, a sort of uh, figure that is distinct from the rest of society and makes him into this pure individual. Okay, so let's go on to the next, um, I guess, this... Okay. One. Oh, do you think sorry, this is like? Do you think this is kind of in tension with uh, the end of the the conclusion of the last volume, where you know part of his like ethics of individuation is kind of not being uh, substantial and and uh, uh, kind of self enclosed individual. Seems like that's kind of close to what the technician is here. I think the the technician is not sort of. Um, um, uh, a sort of substance or self self contained or or anything along those lines, because the technician has this relationship to the natural world um, or these hidden aspects of nature. Um, so, uh, becoming a technician requires this sort of discipline where you're sort of um, um, subject to nature uh, in order to gain these powers uh, of controlling nature um so there's uh a certain um i don't know humility or or discipline that's required in order to become a technician and to gain these powers uh of understanding and controlling the hidden aspects of nature uh and and so because of that i don't think the technician is um self-contained in in that sense uh it, it's a sort of um openness to these hidden aspects of nature rather than uh, like a, a, a closed um, interiority. That makes sense. But yeah, that's a good question though. Um, yeah, I, I think um, in general, like for the, especially the second part, second half of volume one, he, um, he gives us like these different sort of sketches um, and it's sometimes hard to see what the connection is between them, like how we're supposed to understand um, the the different sketches in connection with each other. And, and um, yeah, so I, I think making those sorts of comparisons between different parts uh, of the book is definitely uh, a useful exercise. Okay, uh, so Leah, let's go on to the next, um, I guess just this one paragraph uh, before the section break, uh, if someone else would like to read. Six centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, the engineer in the Greek cities of Ionia, the engineer in the Greek cities of Ionia becomes the technician par excellence. He brings to these cities the power of expansion, and he is the one who is Eumachanus es technus, mechanically crafty and ingenious. Thales and Eximander and Anaximenes are technicians above all else. We should not forget that the first appearance of a free individual thought and a disinterested reflection is the product of technicians, i.e. men who knew 
who know how to stand apart from the community in a direct dialogue with the world. Tannery has shown in his work, Pour Histoire de la Science Hélène, the dominant role of technical thought in what he calls the Greek miracle. The miracle is the arrival within the community of the pure individual, the one who joins the two conditions of reflexive thought in it, organic life and technical life. These first technicians have revealed their strength by predicting a solar eclipse, just like Thales did. Technics and labor cannot be conflated. In fact, by losing its characteristic of operating on a hidden object, labor is no longer a technics. The veritable technician is the one who is a mediator between the community and the hidden or inaccessible object. Today, we call technicians those who in reality are specialized laborers, but do not put the community in relation with the hidden domain. An absolutely elucidated and divulged technics is no longer a technics, but a type of labor. Specialists are not veritable technicians, but laborers. The veritable technical activity is in the domain of scientific research, which because it is research is oriented toward objects or properties of objects that are still unknown. Free individuals are those who carry out research and thereby institute a relation with the non-social object. This seems to be related to the point that he makes later on about how technics is what kind of keeps open um, what would otherwise be a closed community. And I think that that's maybe why this the aspect of the relation with the the hidden um, the hidden object or the hidden properties of the object is is important because if it's already visible, then it's kind of already maybe accounted for within the uh, the adaptation of the community to its milieu. Um, but if it's hidden, then you know it's it's discovery or like the interaction with it forces the community to interact with the milieu differently. You know, it's kind of stereotyped iteration. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think there's there's this um, the hiddenness of of these aspects of nature that the technician is able to um, work with um, also means that there's no um, there's no sort of integration of those aspects of nature into the social whole. Uh, in the way that there is for other aspects of nature, um, and so um, it's only it's only the technician who knows how to operate with these aspects of nature, and um, the rest of the society has to sort of um, accept this uh, 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 knowledge and um, and skill of the technician as a given, uh, rather than having an understanding of it themselves. Um, and I think I think this point about um, uh, Thales and Anaximander and Aximenes as as technicians is an interesting one because um, there there's the famous story about Thales that he um, from various like astronomical observations or or some sort of observations he was able to predict that there would be a a, a big olive crop that year and he bought up the whole um, the whole crop in whatever Miletus, I think is his city. Um, anyway, he bought up the whole crop and, uh, made all, all kinds of money by, um, uh, because he, he predicted that it would be a good crop that year. Um, and, uh, yeah, and he was a military engineer. Um, and, and so th there was this, um, uh, role in, in ancient Greek society of the, the engineer, um, who, uh, who, um, 
gives the the the, the city this um, extra uh, capacity in military affairs, um, and it's these figures are are some of the first people that start doing what we now would recognize as philosophy, um, and and sort of reflecting on um, uh, uh, the origin of of things and um, the relationships between things in sort of the broad sense um, and who sometimes um, question the uh, religious traditions of that society. Um, I think it was, uh, was it Anaximander? Oh no, sorry, that's Anaxagoras later on who, um, who says that the, uh, the earth is just a stone uh, and, and not a, a sort of divine entity of any kind um uh, but um yeah so this this role of the technician allows these people to sort of go beyond the received set of concepts and ideas and uh and stories and so on that are that make up the culture that they live in uh it gives them this access to a realm outside of that society uh and then this last bit here where he talks about um how in our contemporary society, the technicians are the scientists. So we like we use the term technician, like you know the the person who comes to fix your TV or whatever, the technician. Um, uh, but this is obviously not a, a a hidden skill or a hidden knowledge. It's just knowledge that you don't happen to have. Um, you there's a division of labor within society in terms of um, what knowledge and skills people specialize in. Uh, but the the knowledge itself is completely open. If you um, you know go online and read about how TVs work, you can you can probably learn it all on your own if you really wanted to. Um, but um, it's only in scientific research that there's this same sort of relationship with something unknown or hidden in nature, uh, and not in uh, these roles of that we we sort of typically call technicians, which are just sort of specialized workers um, that, that have uh, uh, the specialized skill, but not um, this relation to something unknown or hidden. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read the next page or so. Um, let me just see how long this section is. Um, yeah, that's a couple pages, so let's break it up. Okay, section two. The technical operation as a condition of individuation, invention and autonomy, community and technical trans-individual relation. The rapport of men to the worlds can in fact be effectuated either through the community, i.e. through labor, or from the individual to the object in a direct dialogue, i.e. technical effort. The technical object elaborated in this way defines a certain crystallization of creative human action and perpetuates it in being. Technical effort does not submit to the same temporal regime as labor. Labor exhausts itself in its own achievement, and the being who labors is alienated in his work, which increasingly becomes distant with respect to himself. Inversely, the technical being realizes the summation of an availability that, has, that always remains present. Effort extended in time without dissipating discursively constructs a coherent being that expresses the action or series of actions that have constituted it and that conserves them as always present. The technical being mediates human effort and confers an autonomy on it that the community cannot confer on labor. The technical being is participable. 
insofar as the nature of the technical object resides not only in its actuality, but also in the information that it determines and that constitutes it. It can be reproduced without losing this information. As a being of information, it is therefore inexhaustibly fruitful. The technical object is open to being used or recreated by every human activity and is inserted into an impulse of universal communication. The sophists understood and expressed this value of technical effort, which frees man from the community and makes him a veritable individual. Man is not just a zoan on, uh, sorry, zoan politikon, or political animal, but also a zoan technikon, or a technical animal. And the communication of technical thought is imbued with the characteristic of universality down to its coarsest or most elementary forms. Auguste Comte noted the inheritance of the necessary seeds of positivity to the, the technical operation. The technical operation, in fact, brings about what labor or the other com communal functions cannot, the reactivity of the act. Constructive activity gives man the real image of his act because what is currently the object of construction becomes the means for a later construction due to an ongoing mediatization. This continuous and open regime of the time of technical effort is what allows the individual to have a reactive awareness of his own action and to be his own norm to himself. Furthermore, Technical norms are fully accessible to the individual without the need to resort to a social normativity. The technical object is either valid or not according to its internal characteristics, which express the schematism inherent in the effort by which it is constituted. An intrinsic normativity of the acts of the subject, which requires their internal coherence, is defined based on the inventive technical operation. These norms are never enough to produce invention, but their imminence to the subject conditions the validity of his effort. The technician can only act freely, for technical normativity is intrinsic with respect to the action that constitutes it. This normativity is not exterior, exterior or anterior to action, yet action is also not anomic because it is not fruitful unless it is coherent, and this coherence is its normativity. Technical normativity is valid insofar as it exists veritably in itself and not in the community. The adoption or refusal of a technical object by, by a society means nothing for or against the validity of this object. Technical normativity is intrinsic and absolute. It can even be said that the penetration of a new normativity into a closed community is made possible by way of techniques. Technical normativity modifies the code of values of a closed society because there is a systematic of values and by admitting a new techniques, every closed society that introduces values inherent to this techniques thereby carries out a new structuration of its code of values. Since there is no community that does not utilize any techniques or that never introduces new ones, there's no completely closed and unevolving community. Yeah, this bit about the sophists is, is interesting. Um, I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly who, who he has in mind here among the sophists, um, but it's possible that he's thinking of um, Protagoras um, because in, uh, in Plato's dialogue, the Protagoras, um, Protagoras, the sophist, appears, uh, and he gives this account of the origin of humanity um, as having to do with technical knowledge. Uh, it's uh, the story of Prometheus uh, stealing fire um, and and uh, giving it to human beings. Um, and uh, um, so this knowledge of fire, uh, of, of how to use fire, um, is sort of the, the core uh, of technical knowledge that allows humans to to found cities and to um, create uh, pottery and uh, um, metalworking and all, all sorts of other um, uh, technical skills. Uh, and and so uh, for Protagoras, it's this um, 
technical knowledge that is sort of characteristic of human beings because humans um, don't have natural um, um, defenses in the way that other animals do, like claws or tusks or whatever. And so um, technical knowledge is sort of the the way that human beings um, defend themselves against the rest of nature. Uh, and so I, I think that might be what he's thinking of here is, is this role of um, technical knowledge as a uh, Sort of constituting what is a human being in the Protagoras, uh, and so it's interesting here that he again, um, like we saw this in the last the last section a little bit, but he um, he sort of expands on it here. But there's a difference between labor and uh, technical effort or technical action. Um, so labor or or work um, that uses you, you might be using some sort of um, advanced technological tool or a piece of equipment to do your work, um, whether it's a, a computer or you know, uh, like in a in a factory where they have robots that are part of the um, work process. That's um, th it's still work in the sense that you're not um, interacting with something uh, extra social. This hidden aspect of nature. Uh, Whereas uh, technical effort has to do with the effort of actually creating a new um, technical object of some kind or um, creating an improvement on an existing technical object or, or some sort of um, effort directed towards the interaction of uh, uh, your, your interests and goals with um, some hidden aspect of nature or an aspect of nature that hasn't been uh, sort of brought to light yet. Uh, and so this technical effort is what is required for um, for uh, this pure individual to um, to uh, sort of constitute itself in opposition to the rest of society. And so what what contrasts um, technical or or what is different about technical effort in comparison to other uh, to work or other um, uh, sort of operations that have uh, a social value is that it it has uh, its its normativity is sort of intrinsic to it in a way that is not the case for other um, operations. So um, in in work you you can have a, a norm of um, uh, productivity, for example, um, but this is sort of imposed from the outside. It's not inherent to the work process that productivity is, is necessarily the goal of that work process. You can have other goals for work uh, and in other societies, there, there are other goals for work and, and productivity is not necessarily um, the what, it, what is uh, sought in the work process. Uh, whereas in technical effort, um, the um, perfection of a technical object is um, as, as an intrinsic goal, and um, it's not something imposed on the technical effort from outside. Uh, it's it's uh, a sort of um, um, it's a sort of relationship to this uh, hidden aspect of nature, um, without sort of presupposing what that hidden aspect is going to be. Uh, and without imposing any um, norms from outside on how that relationship is supposed to work. And so um, there's, um, because it has this intrinsic normativity, it's uh, this technical effort um, 
has to have um, this sort of coherence. It has to produce something that uh, sort of stands up uh, to inspection uh, or to uh, other other um, other technicians verification or or something along those lines. Um, and because it has this intrinsic normativity, it's not uh, subject to the normativity of the society as a whole. Uh, and then this is the sort of the mechanism by which there can be changes in a society. Um, so uh, even even uh, a society or even a group that is closer to the community end of the spectrum um, that has this um, organic character uh, it and and tends towards closeness, it's still because it uses um, technical operations of various kinds, it still has this capacity for openness uh, within it. it. It still has the capacity to undergo change and uh, transformation as a result of technical developments. This okay. idea of the uh, reactivity of the um, product of technical effort makes me think of the moral act in the conclusion of volume one as something that can be taken back up again. And he even says that uh, there's an availability to the technical being that always remains present, <clears throat> um, which I think maybe is the kind of like non-historically simultaneous co-presence that he talked about in that conclusion with regard to the ethical or moral act. Yeah, it definitely sounds similar. Um, I think, um, yeah, so he talks about this universal communication of the technical, um, the technical object. Um, um, so there's a, a sort of network of technical objects with each other that um, every, uh, every technical object um, is related to other technical objects in various ways. Like it uh, either it uses um, uh, another technical object as a, a component or um, you have to use technical object A in order to produce technical object B or um, one of them might be a raw material that the other one works up upon or, or whatever. Um, so there's this network of, of interactions between different technical objects that um, um, sort of constitutes this universal communication. And, and so this allows, um, actually, in, in connection with um, the, the, the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects, he, he, in the third part of that book, when he's characterizing technical um, or, or uh, the technical mode of existence of human beings, what he argues is, is um, specific to this mode of existence is the fact that technical objects are um, displaceable. So that you, whereas um, magical objects or, or the magical mode of existence is tied to specific um, sites, sacred sites or sites that have this specific power, um, uh, and and you know places and times um, that have this specific power, the technical object can be displaced. So you can, um, if you can create a, a pot or a wheel or a bow and arrow or whatever, um, you can move that uh, object to a different place or someone from a different society can learn how to use it and, and how to make it and uh, take it up in a completely different technical, uh, a completely different social context. Um, and, and so I think this um, aspect of, 
of the technical object is part of what he has in mind here when he talks about um, sort of being able to um, recreate the technical object. Um, this being this is a sort of uh, intrinsic characteristic of the technical object, the fact that it can be displaced and used in any sort of context um, outside of the original context of creation. All right, so let's go on to the next bit on 413 from every social group. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Yeah, I can go again. Every social group is a mixture of community and society. If a community is defined as a code of extrinsic obligations with respect to individuals, and if a society is defined as an interiority with respect to individuals. Communal effort and technical effort are antagonistic in a determined society. Communal forces tend to incorporate techniques in a system of social obligations by assimilating technical effort to a labor. But technical effort obliges the community to always rectify its structure so it can incorporate ever new creations. And this effort submits the community structure to judgment according to its own values by analyzing the community's dynamic characteristics that this structure predetermines. Positivist technicism is a very clear example of the way in which such a thought introduces new values into the community and is more than a sort of sociology. A sociology that believes itself capable of grasping human reality in its specificity does not take into account the pure individual and techniques in their genesis and therefore defines the social only by way of obligation. But in doing so, it ignores an important part of social reality, a part that can, in certain cases, become more dominant. Collective reality is indissociably communal and social, but these two characteristics are antagonistic, and monistic sociology cannot account for this antagonism. It would be incorrect to maintain that the community only reacts against the dissociating effects of the individual who seek to satisfy his egoistic desires. An inventor or a scientist is no more egotistical, uh, egoistical than a painter or a poet. However, the community accepts the painter or the poet, but balks at invention, since in invention, there is something beyond the community that establishes a trans-individual relation. Going from individual to individual without passing through the communal integration guaranteed by a collective mythology. The immediate relation between individuals defines a social existence in the proper sense of the term, whereas the communal relation does not make individuals communicate with one another directly, but constitutes a totality, through the intermediary of which they communicate indirectly and without a precise awareness of their individuality. A theory of community overlooks the dynamism of a society of individuals to be complete. Socio sorry, to be complete, sociology must integrate a study of techniques. Just like the humanism of the sophists, humanism must also integrate a study of techniques. It could be objected that technical creation is something rare, and that under these conditions, individual behavior can only be very exceptional. Nevertheless, there is a radiation of values around a behavior, and a behavior is not isolated in the sum of the individual's actions, no more than an individual is isolated in the social milieu in which he exists. The individual's very nature is to communicate, to radiate around him the information that propagates what he creates. This is what is made possible by technical invention, which is unlimited in space and time. Technical invention propagates without losing strength, even when it is associated with another element or is integrated into a more complex whole. The work of the individual can indeed propagate beyond the individual himself in two ways, as a technical work, properly speaking, or as a consequence of this work in the form of a modification of the collective conditions of existence, which imply values and requirements. 
Thus, the invention of a rapid means of communication is not nullified by the discovery of a faster means. Even if the technical procedures are totally transformed, there remains a dynamic continuity that consists in the fact that the introduction of the first mode of transport into the community has developed a requirement of rapidity that serves to promote the second mode strongly. The first mode has created the function and inserted itself, inserted it into the set of dynamisms of the community. Every technical device, dispositif, modifies the community to a certain degree and introduces a function that can make possible the advent of other technical devices. Thus, it is inserted into a community that does not exclude change but stimulates it since requirements always exist before their realizations. In this sense, the technical being is converted into civilization. Furthermore, a technical being, even when it is barely integrated into the community, has value as an object to be comprehended. It requires a type of perception and conceptualization that aims to comprehend the technical being by recreating it. The technical being therefore exists as a seed of thought that contains a normativity extending far beyond itself. The technical being in this second manner, therefore, constitutes a path that transmits from individual to individual a certain capacity of creation, as if there were a dynamism common to all research and a society of individuals who create technical beings. Right. So here we have, um, again, the, the contrasts or um, the relationship between society and community, um, how... Um, how every group is both a society and a community. Um, and, and so there's uh, different aspects. Um, these two aspects are, are operating at the same time uh, in every social group. Um, and he, he argues here that um, technical effort, as we have discussed before, is opposed to communal effort. Um, and, and so there's a sense in which um, uh, technical effort and the effort of creation of uh, a new technical object or um, a, a perfected technical object is uh, something that is not um, integrated into the functioning of the community. And so he, he argues that um, a monistic sociology, so a sociology that would um, only recognize the communal uh, or only recognize the social is uh, incapable of sort of uh, recognizing this antagonism between the two aspects. Uh, and so um, it, uh, a sociology that doesn't ha have a, a role or doesn't assign um, a role to technical creation is a sort of um, one-sided sociology. It, it doesn't grasp the, this other side of human existence. Um, and then he, he wants to argue against maybe a, a, a possible misunderstanding or, or misconception, which would be that um, in technical creation, the individual is uh, sort of satisfying their own uh, uh, individual desires. And then the communal reaction to that technical creation would be a sort of defense mechanism. Um, and he, he argues that in, um, in technical creation, the inventor or the scientist is not really acting in a, a, a self-interested manner in any sense greater than the poet or the painter does. So, of course, scientists and inventors are interested in, you know, wealth and fame and uh, uh, all the um, sort of self-interested goals that any of us are interested in. Um, but 
they aren't sort of more interested in those goals or they aren't more uh, motivated by those factors than the artist or the painter is. Whereas um, in the, the painter or the, the poet or, or whatever other um, figure can be integrated into the community in a way that the uh, technician um, can't be, uh, as we saw uh, in the previous section, um, the technician is always sort of external to the the community in in uh, in some sense, and um, and so here he he introduces again this notion of a trans individual as uh, what is characteristic of the technician. So the technician um, allows uh, this technical knowledge that, that the technician has allows. Um, for this trans individual relation to sort of bypass the uh, communal structure. So there's a, a relationship between individuals that is not sort of mediated by the community. Uh, and this is something that um, is obviously dangerous to a community. It, it sort of um, uh, makes the community uh, fragile and it makes it into something that um, can be uh, uh, destroyed by by technical knowledge and the, this trans individual character of technical knowledge. Um, so uh, yeah, so he he talks about how um, another sort of objection that you could make would be that um, technical creation is something rare. It, there is there are you know not that many instances of people inventing new techniques and new technologies, um, and so it's not that. Uh, important for sociology to uh, have an account of technical creation. Uh, and then, so his response to this objection is that uh, there's a sort of, um, um, there's a sort of rule of technical invention um, that goes beyond the actual act of creation of a new technical object. There's a sort of, uh, what he calls it here, a, prop a propagation. Um, from uh, from this technical act, the, this effort of creation of a new technical object uh, that that has this effect of restructuring the community, uh, and then so he he gives this example of um, how um, if you have uh, the invention of a, a new uh, mode of transportation, um, like I think he's thinking here probably of uh, railways in in the 18th and 19th century. Um, this introduces a whole new um, uh, sort of requirement for for speed of of transportation, which didn't really exist before. Um, the uh, The speed of transportation was more or less fixed from uh, the time that humans first domesticated horses until um, the time when uh, uh, railway travel started to become possible in the uh, 19th century. Um, and and so it's only with the introduction of railways that this uh, requirement for speed of transportation starts to become uh, uh, starts to become active in the community. And so even though railway travel is no longer the sort of um, uh, peak of scientific uh, or technical um, uh, progress as it was at the time, um, and there are faster modes of transportation, this 
uh, effect of the the railways in bringing about uh, speed of transportation as a requirement still uh, is still active in our community, uh, and so the uh, technical act of creating uh, a train or a railway is is still um, effective in our our uh, everyday life, even if we don't use railway travel in the same way that uh, people did in the 19th century. And then the second aspect um, of how how a technical object uh, or the act of creation of a technical object sort of reverberates in a community is is because it presents uh, a new object for understanding. It's uh, um, it it sort of um, poses a problem for that community, uh, and and so like uh, again uh, sticking with nineteenth century examples, uh, the whole science of of thermodynamics was developed as a as a result of um, the development of uh, of steam engines in the nineteenth century, uh, and and so um, there was uh, you know, a sort of technical knowledge, um, uh, a non-scientific knowledge of um, the uh, efficiency of steam engines and, and how much power you could get out of a certain amount of fuel. Uh, and then uh, scientists started to examine this sort of domain of knowledge and try to um, define um, like what is the, the limit, what is the, the most efficient a steam engine could possibly be uh, and and so that's sort of the origin of um, the science of thermodynamics, uh, and and so there's um, um, this sort of uh, problem that a technical object poses to a community that that brings about a, a new um, conceptualization and a new uh, uh, set of problems, uh, a new set of ideas for that community. Yeah, exactly. Sadikano, um, who uh, um, there's the other one, the other text, um, the uh, theory of I forget the exact word wording, but anyway, the the sort of introduction of the uh, ideal uh, thermodynamic machine, um, which Carnot uh, introduces in in the 19th century. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next page. Um, let's see. Yeah, we can read a, a page or so. Um, so I'll read this. The second direction also pertains to the transformation of the technical being into an element of civilization. Civilization is consequently the set of the community's dynamisms and of the dynamisms of different societies that encounter in the world of technical beings a condition of compatibility. Even if the notion of progress cannot be directly accepted and should be elaborated by a reflexive labor, it is indeed this compatibility of the community and of societies that finds a meaning in the notion of progressive development. Progress is the characteristic of development that integrates into a whole both the meaning of successive discontinuous discoveries as well as the stable unity of a community. Community and society can become synergistic through the intermediary of technical progress. Ultimately, the technical being's own consistency is constituted as an expanding reality within the temporal continuity of the technical universe in which a twofold simultaneous and successive solidarity links technical beings together through a mutual conditioning. We could speak of an internal resonance of the technical universe within which each technical being effectively intervenes as a real condition of existence for other technical beings. Each technical being is therefore like a microcosm that encompasses within its conditions of monadic existence a very large number of other valid technical beings. 
a circular causality creates a reciprocity of conditions of existence that gives the technical universe its consistency and its unity. This current unity persists through a successor unity that renders humanity comparable to someone, as Pascal says, who would always grasp everything without ever forgetting. The value of the individual's dialogue with the technical, technical object is thus to conserve human effort and to create a domain of the trans individual distinct from the community in which the notion of freedom takes on a meaning and transforms the notion of individual destiny, but does not nullify it. The fundamental characteristic of the technical being is to integrate, integrate time into a concrete and consistent existence. It is consequently the correlate of the individual self-creation. No doubt this aspect of the technical object hasn't been completely ignored. A particular form of the technical object as a seed of civilization has been recognized and honored for a long time. The artificial aesthetic object, i.e. the objet d'art. The religious and magical origins of the objet d'art were enough to indicate its value. But we should note that the objet d'art has become disconnected from its origins and has become a pure instrument of communication, a free means of expression, even at a time when the poet was still a soothsayer. However, the aesthetic object's status of existence is precarious. It is reinserted into the life of the community obliquely and is only accepted if it corresponds to one of the already existing vital dynamisms. Every artist then remains the tertius of a community. This kind of recourse consists in forming a community of people of taste, an informed cynical of authors and critics who cultivate pure art. But then pure art becomes the symbolon of the members of this community and thereby loses its pure character. It closes in upon itself. Surrealism was the latest attempt to save pure art. This effort has a very noble sense. It is not up to us to say whether surrealism was paralyzed by its own effort and has ended up in an asceticism despite itself. We should note that the liberating paths of surrealism lead to the construction of an object that is stable, self-organized like an automaton, independent from its creator, and indifferent to the one who encounters it. Surrealism, so to speak, is in the hyperfunctional manner of constructing the object. This object is neither useful nor agreeable. It is consistent unto itself and turned back upon itself, sorry, turned back to itself. And it is absurd because it has not complied with the obligation of signifying in a reality other than its own. Uh, so here he um, maybe qualifies a little bit what he had said earlier about how the, uh, the poet or the uh, painter is integrated into the community um, because he uh, suggests that um, um, art in, in the modern sense of the term is a, a sort of technical object, um, a, a painting or um, a, a sculpture or whatever is, uh, is a technical object in, uh, in some sense of the word or in, in the specific way that he wants to use this word. Uh, and um, again, he's, he's sort of drawing on the third part of uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects here. But he, so in that, in that book, in, in that third part, he, he gives this genetic anthropology, um, so a, a, a series of different modes of existence of the human being. Um, and he begins with the, the magical mode of existence. Uh, and, and then he, he sees this as being split uh, into um, uh, technical and religious modes of existence. Um, and, and so he, he just sort of alludes to this um, genetic anthropology here, but he, he, um, he suggests that the work of art is, uh, has its origin in, um, 
magical and religious modes of existence and is sort of a remnant of these modes of existence in our society today. Uh, but um, the but he he argues that um, the work of art ha- has become disconnected from this magical and religious context and plays a role of a, a sort of pure aesthetic uh, um, uh, instrument or a means of uh, expression that uh, is not connected to this religious and magical context. Um, but then there's uh, this sort of second moment where um, art for art's sake becomes sort of the uh, principle around which uh, a new community forms. So even if the art uh, object is, is a technical object in a sense and, and sort of um, surpasses what a community is capable of absorbing, um, you can form like the new community of avant-garde artists. Um, and, and you know, over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, there were all these sort of artistic um, communities that developed. And, and so he points here to the surrealists as one example of this. Um, so it, it was like a, a group of artists who were dedicated to um, a certain way of practicing art and sort of formed this community uh, of, of artists and critics that were sort of um, self-contained in a sense. Um, and um, yeah, so there's this second moment where um, the the art object becomes the, the principle uh, of uh, the formation of a new community. So there's a, a sort of constant tension between um, the art object as a technical object that surpasses the community and can't be fully integrated into the community, and then the formation of a new community around that art object. Uh, and so these are sort of always in tension with each other. Oh, I just realized there was only one paragraph left in that section. I should have just finished it. Um, oh, well. Um, so if someone else would like to read that last paragraph of the section, and then we can stop to discuss. Yeah, I can read. Um, The object is endowed with internal resonance, which is palpable even in poetic forms or in painting. The surrealist object is an absolute machine. There is no function that remains essential to it, even that of Goetea. For it to be produced by chance would require an encounter that would break the natural finality of an ensemble and allow for the appearance of a being divorced from its function, which would consequently make this being absolute extraordinary. The surrealistic object tends toward a positive surreal, and one of the paths of the surreal is that of the technical being, which is extraordinary because it is new and beyond utility. The technical being reproduced and disclosed through industry loses its surreal value to the extent that the anesthesia of everyday use deprives perception of the object's singular characteristics. Seen as a utensil, the technical being no longer has meaning for the individual. The community appropriates it, normalizes it, and gives it a use value that is foreign to its own dynamic essence. But every technical object can be rediscovered by the individual whose technical taste and technical culture are sufficiently developed. Thus, the technical object is a surreal, but it can only be felt as such if it is grasped by the pure individual, by someone who can be creative, and not by a user who treats the technical object as a mercenary or a slave. It seems to be saying that the surrealist work of art is 
like a technical object in this paragraph, but I don't, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to me because you said that the surrealist work of art is not useful. And I don't really know. Uh, the idea of the technical object being kind of essentially not useful um, doesn't really make sense to me. This is um, sort of a difficult passage. Um, I think, um, I think the idea here is that um, a, a surrealist object um, is a sort of, it's almost like a machine for producing a certain experience in the, the viewer or the audience. Um, it, it sort of, it has no um, function in the sense of, you know, performing some task that um, satisfies particular human needs or, or something along those lines. And it's not um, agreeable. It's not designed to be beautiful in the way that um, sort of classical art objects are. Um, but it, it, it has the effect of producing an experience of some kind uh, in the viewer. Um, and it's this pure sort of experience producing capacity of the object that I think he has in mind here. Um, and, and then so he, um, he uh, points to the way that um, this is uh, a sort of um, extraordinary capacity of a, a, an art object, even a surrealist art object. So it, it's only because it's this particular object, this sort of um, unique object that it has the capacity to produce this kind of experience. Whereas once it, um, once you have um, mass reproduction of, of whatever objects, it no longer has this capacity to produce this extraordinary experience in the, the viewer. Um, and so uh, once, once something becomes um, uh, an object of everyday use, then it's only its usefulness that uh, sort of becomes uh, relevant or um, of interest in evaluating that object. It no longer serves to produce these extraordinary experiences. Uh, and then, yeah, so once it becomes uh, an object of everyday use, then it, it becomes integrated into the community. Uh, and, and then it no longer has this capacity to produce new experiences. Uh, but then uh, at the same time, uh, any any technical object, um, even one that is not necessarily produced for the sake of, of uh, producing um, an experience, uh, this, this technical object can be sort of, um, can become the object of a, a surreal experience. It, um, it, uh, if the individual, um, develops what, what he calls here a technical taste and technical culture, um, this sort of appreciation for technical objects in, for their own sake, uh, then the individual can learn to um, experience technical objects as, uh, surreal, uh, as, as surreal objects that produce this experience. Uh, and um, he's going to talk about this more in, in later sections, but he, he contrasts this with treating a technical object as a, a slave or a, a mercenary. So just as um, something that does useful work for us, uh, that that sort of makes life more agreeable in some way. Uh, and, and this is like a, a, um, a sort of um, 
misunderstanding uh, or not grasping of a technical object um, as it is itself. Yeah, um, I think in relation to Heidegger, um, I think it might not be as opposed as it might seem because um, the technical object is is integrated into uh, for Heidegger the technical object the uh, um, um, uh, the object that is ready to hand um, is integrated into a sort of communal structure of uh, of being in the world um, and and so it's not um, sort of integrated into it, it's not something that is connected to the individual as such. Um, Whereas, um, um, or and, and then sort of in contrast um, to that, the individual doesn't necessarily have any relation to um, the ready-to-hand uh, object. Um, the the individual, insofar as as it is an individual, is not necessarily connected to anything ready-to-hand, um, and so I think it's a maybe a, a more similar um, sort of understanding or more compatible understanding than, um, uh, than it might seem at the, in the first instance. Um, yeah, and so it's only, um, for Simon Don, it's only the individual who, um, who has um, the capacity to understand a technical object in itself uh, rather than as an object of utility uh, and, and it's only uh, insofar as you treat a technical object as an object of utility, you're treating it as uh, something integrated into the community rather than as you're not um, working with it or um, behaving towards it as an individual. But yeah, so the, there is a, a contrast with Heidegger here in, the, in I think, the sort of um, valorization of the technical object. Um, so in uh, the question concerning technology, um, Heidegger has a um, a sort of, well, I think it's pretty clearly negative um, valuation of technology, even though he, he sort of says in that text that he doesn't want to just sort of criticize technology in like the, the sort of um, standard sense of that word, but he, he obviously finds um, technical objects uh, unsettling in, in various ways. And um, his examples of being in the world are always drawn from sort of um, pre, uh, pre-industrial um, technological um, uh, objects like hammers and, and so on, um, rather than, uh, um, you know, factories and uh, railways and, and airplanes and so on um so yeah there's um yeah the the jugs and uh and the yeah the wine jug and and so on um <laughs> it looks like a hammer <laughs> um yeah so um uh i think for simon don there's this um uh, a sense in which having an understanding of technical objects is uh, inherently valuable, uh, and and there's a, a certain um, positive valorization of technical objects in a way that there isn't for Heidegger. Um, uh, for Heidegger, the technical objects are sort of inherently um, uh, um, deprived of, um, like, uh, um, deprived of 
uh, an understanding of being. Um, and, and so you can't really, um, uh, you can't, sorry, I'm being distracted by the, uh, <laughs> the chat here. Um, you can't, you can't really have a, a, a grasp of uh, the question of being if you're sort of distracted by technical objects and uh, um, uh, you have to sort of remove yourself um, from this context of technical objects to uh, to have a, a grasp of the question of being for Heidegger. Whereas for Simon Don, um, having a, a grasp of technical objects and and uh, understanding their functioning and so on is um, is uh, uh, something that is inherently valuable uh, and that allows for an understanding of the being of those technical objects. Okay, so let's go on to section three, if someone else would like to read. Yeah. Uh, section three, individuation of the products of human effort. Until now, we have not attempted to analyze the technical object other than indirectly through its rapport to the one who produces or uses it without trying to define its internal structure and dynamism. However, if the object's rapport to man, in this case, presents the characteristics of a relation, we should rediscover in the technical object an analogical structure and an analogical human dynamism. These two internal characteristics of the technical object cannot be understood if the technical object is conflated with the tool, which then makes it lose its individuality and therefore its own value. As Piaget has remarkably shown based on archeological and ethnographic considerations, the tool is deprived of its own individuality because it is grafted onto another individualized organism's body part, because its function is to extend, reinforce, and protect, but not replace the latter. A spyglass is not a technical being endowed with its own individuality, since it supposes the eye and has no dynamic meaning except in front of an eye, or in front of a photographic apparatus which prepares the view that the eye will observe. Its dynamism is incomplete. The spyglass is made to be manipulated and controlled by the individual who sees or by the photograph, and these individuals are humans. Pliers are the refined and hardened extension of human nails or human hands. A hammer is an unfeeling and hardened fist. The evolution of the forms of the door knocker show that in the beginning it was conceived as a hand holding a bronze ball, with the wrist being replaced by a pivot affixed to the door. The Greek key was originally a thinned arm ending with a hook, and one would introduce it into a narrow cleft in the door through which one could grab the interior bolt. Theocritus describes the priestess bearing on her shoulder the key of a temple, the insignia of her function and her majesty. The modern key in some sense is still a hook for opening a door. Conversely, rather than extensions of the human individual, motors are beings that contribute from outside an available energy according to the individual's needs. They are endowed with exteriority relative to the structure and dynamic of the individual. This is why they initially appear to be endowed with individuality. The slave is the primordial model for every motor. The slave is a being who contains his complete organization and his organic autonomy within himself, even when his action is subjugated by an accidental domination. The domesticated animal is also an organism. Even with the degradation of the state of domestication or slavery, the organic and living motor conserves an inalienable individuality due to its natural spontaneity. The blind slave who flees along the road from Larissa is an individual, just like the enraged animal that becomes wild again at the risk of its own life. The revolt of animals and slaves, despite the whip and the gallows, shows that these organic motors have an autonomy, 
a nature that can at least manifest its autonomy in destructive fury beyond any estimation of the dangers or the chances. Despite the well-known definition, a slave is never completely a speaking tool. The tool has no individuality. Right, so here we have um, a contrast between tools and machines in the proper sense, or uh, technical objects uh, in the proper sense of the, the term. Um, and, and so a tool is something that um, serves to extend uh, a human capacity in some way, um, and, and it doesn't have um, the, the role of an individual. Uh, and, and so he gives some of these examples here, like hammers, uh, pliers, etc. These are just extensions of a human, um, a human um, uh, uh, organ or, or a part of the human body in, in a way that makes it um, more usable for a particular task. Uh, whereas uh, a machine in the proper sense of the term is an individual um, and and so he he talks here about a, a motor um, as um, standing in for a slave uh, and um, so this I think this distinction um, actually goes back to Marx if I remember correctly um, he, he talks about this distinction between uh, tools and then machines that replace uh, a worker um, and um, so the the um, the machine in the proper sense of the term is uh, a, a, an individual it stands in for a human being um, but it always has this contrast with the the individual human being in in that um, the human being always has the capacity to revolt um, so we'll see more about this in the, the next couple paragraphs but um, there, there's always a capacity for the human being to refuse to work or to, um, to revolt or, um, in in some sense, to to not cooperate with the work process in a way that a machine can't. A machine can uh, not function properly, but it can't refuse to work. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Also, he he mentions animals here um, because animals also refuse to work sometimes um, um, they you know uh, they can just decide you know I don't feel like pulling this plow anymore and uh, you know sit down and no matter how much you whip it or whatever um, it just refuses to to work anymore um, and and uh, so there's a certain autonomy that uh, both animals and and humans have that a machine does not have. Uh, even though the machine is is sort of standing in for the uh, the individual animal or the individual human being. Okay, uh, let's go on. Yeah, we have probably have time for one more page or so. Um, I can read the next page. However, the technical being is more than the tool and less than the slave. It possesses an autonomy, but one that is relative, limited, without any veritable exteriority with with respect to the to the man who constructs it. The technical being has no nature. It can be a functional analogy of, of the individual, but it is never an, a veritable organic individual. Let's suppose that a machine has been endowed with the most perfect teleological mechanisms by its constructors and that it is capable of carrying out the fastest and most perfect labors. This machine, which is functionally equivalent to thousands of humans, even so will not be a veritable individual. 
the best calculating machine does not have the same degree of reality as an ignorant slave because the slave can revolt while the machine cannot. With respect to man, the machine cannot have any veritable exteriority because it has no veritable interiority within itself. The machine can lose its regularity and then present functional characteristics and analogous to wild behavior in an, a living being, but it cannot revolt. Revolt, in fact, implies a profound transformation of finalized behaviors and not a malfunctioning of behavior. The machine is capable of self-adaptive behaviors. There is nevertheless a big difference between a self-adaptive behavior and a conversion that no external resemblance can disguise. Man is capable of conversion in the sense that he can change goals throughout the course of his existence. Individuality is beyond teleological mechanism because it can modify the orientation of this finality. Conversely, the machine is more perfect when its automatism allows it to self-regulate according to its predetermined finality. But the machine is not self-creative. Even if we suppose that the machine regulates its own teleological mechanisms <clears throat> during its functioning, we only obtain a machine that is capable, by means of this teleology acting on a teleology, integrating the results of the preceding stages of its functioning as data. This is a machine that increasingly reduces the margin of indetermination of its functioning according to the data of the milieu and in conformity with the convergent determinism. Consequently, this machine adapts. But adaptation is possible according to two opposite processes. The first is what we have described as training, which ends in a more or less stereotyped behavior and an increasingly restricted link with a determined milieu. The second form of adaptation is learning, which on the contrary increases the availability of the being with respect to the different milieus in which it is found by developing the richness of the system of symbols and of dynamisms that integrate past experience according to divergent determinism. In the second case, the quantity of information characterizing the structure and the reserve of the schemas contained in the being increases. The successive abrupt leaps that can be called conversions mark the moments where, because the unintegrated quantity of information has become too large, the being unifies itself by changing its internal structure to adopt the new structure that integrates the accumulated information. Right, so this is what we were just talking about, um, how the machine is uh, not capable of um, not capable of revolts and not capable of um, refusing to work, and and so here he's he's drawing um, a, a firm distinction between the human individual and the machine that sort of approximates uh, towards an individual, um, and and so we can we can have a machine a machine can malfunction and. We sometimes sort of jokingly say that it's you know refusing to work or it's uh, the machine is revolting or or something like that, um, but there's always a distinction in in the fact that um, the the slave who revolts um, is um, the slave is sort of proposing or trying to implement a new finalism uh, a new set of goals uh, for behavior. Um, whereas the machine that breaks down uh, or malfunctions is not um, is not sort of proposing a new set of goals or trying to implement a new set of goals. It's just not working properly. Um, and so he, he gives this sort of thought experiment of um, you can suppose to that you have this machine that um, operates in in the most automatic way you can think of it replaces thousands of workers it, it's you know the perfect machine in uh, whatever sense of that term um but this machine is not capable of uh selecting uh or trying to implement a new 
set of goals. It, it's always uh, oriented towards whatever it was built to be oriented towards. Um, and, and so here he, he talks about the notion of adaptation and um, there's sort of two opposed senses in which you can talk about adaptation. Um, so on the one hand, you have adaptation, which um, sort of uh, means uh, a regulation of, um, of a, an object uh, in accordance with a, a sort of predetermined goal. Uh, and so this is what we were talking about at the beginning um, with the homeostatic mechanisms. Um, and, and so living beings have this capacity to um, preserve themselves in particular states or to orient themselves towards goal states. Uh, and then uh, certain technical objects can sort of mimic that capacity. Uh, and so you can have a technical object that's designed to um, uh, always face towards the sun and, and charge its solar panels or, or something along those lines. Um, and, and that's a, a relatively simple um, uh, machine to, to uh, construct. Um, but then there's a second sense of adaptation, which doesn't mean sort of um, reducing the, the difference between a, a target state and a, a present state. Um, the, the second form of adaptation is what he calls learning. Um, and what this has to do with is not um, sort of an adaptation to an existing milieu, an existing environment. Uh, it's um, a capacity to adapt to multiple different environments. And so um, someone who learns how to drive, for example, um, is is a better driver if they're capable of driving not just one specific route or one specific uh, uh, set of uh, climatic conditions and one specific vehicle and so on, but they can drive uh, different vehicles and they can drive in, in different cities and they can drive whether it's raining or snowing or whatever. Um, that person is, is a better driver uh, the more different types of environments they can exercise the skill of driving in. And so I think that's what he has in mind here with learning. Um, it's uh, not not just a sort of um, reducing uh, the difference between a target state and the present state, like like the first form of adaptation. It's a, a, a sort of enrichment of uh, a skill set that allows for an object, whether it's a, uh, a person or a machine in, in theory, um, uh, it allows this object to um, expand its capacities to operate in different environments. Uh, and then, and so he, he argues that um, this sort of, the second form of adaptation, uh, this learning is something that machines are not capable of. Uh, and, and so it'd be interesting to, to see what he might, might make of, um, you know, so-called machine learning uh, and whether he would see this as um, just a, a sort of sophisticated instance of the first kind of adaptation or whether he would um, want to revise this uh, distinction and, and um, say that, you know, some machines are capable of, of learning in the sense that he uses the term. Um, my, my guess is that he would uh, see what we call machine learning as, as just a, a sophisticated form of adaptation uh, in the first sense uh, in terms of like a, reducing the um, 
the difference between a target state and a, a, a present state because um, like the way they work, machine learning systems are generally um, um, involved. There's generally some sort of process of um, reducing the error uh, in in predictions of some kind. Uh, and, and so there's a, the same sort of um, structure uh, or dynamic of um, making uh, uh, the the goal state and the present state coincide as closely as possible. So I think he would see machine learning as uh, an instance of the first kind of adaptation rather than learning in the proper sense of the term. Um, just looking at the time, I don't think we have enough time to finish this section because it's another two, two and a half pages or so. Um, so I would suggest that we stop here for today and uh, pick up from 4.19 next time, if that works for everyone. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, cool. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for uh, joining in today, and uh, hope to see you all next week.